0: This will be our third and final week in this little book of Zechariah, that famous prophet of the 6th century BC who wrote to God's discouraged people in Jerusalem, discouraged because they were no longer a powerful and prosperous nation, but rather an insignificant people under the rule and taxation of Persia, not only that, they had returned from exile 20 years before, but to date, they had not rebuilt God's temple, which was the centerpiece of their society. And Zechariah's message to them, his gracious message to them overall has been one of encouragement. Encouraging the people to finish rebuilding the temple, remembering that God was for them and he was working for their good. And by this point in his book, Zechariah has done that by passing on eight visions in chapters 1 through 6 and then two sermons in chapters 7 and 8, which brings us now to the final six chapters of his book, where more encouragement comes, but now through two oracles. The word oracle literally is translated burden. These are two heavy weighty messages from God. The first oracle is in chapters 9 through 11, and then the second oracle in chapters 12 through 14. And if you haven't already, I'd encourage you to read through these oracles. If you do, you will see that there is no discernible or logical order to them. It jumps from place to place, from time to time. It is a description of future events, but it is not given chronologically. So we have God's revealed will and his secret will. Revealed is what God was going to do, but kept secret was when God was going to do it. The order and the timing of some of this remained and remains for us, some of it, a mystery. And that's okay. That is not Zechariah's aim. This is not meant to be a blueprint of God's precise plan. It is only meant to be a summary of promises that will be fulfilled. It is a summary of events to come. There are no real operational details that are given. The the what is disclosed, but not the how. And not the when. And that was enough to encourage those Jews in Jerusalem. And by the way, that should be enough to encourage us. The what of what God is going to do without knowing the how and without knowing the when. So let's pray and take a closer look. Father in heaven, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to see, to know you today by your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to this book of Zechariah. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you can find today's text on page 748. So because these chapters jump around, we're not going to just read through them. Instead, what I've done is gathered and grouped together the different passages that are talking about the same thing. And once I did that, a few things, three things, stood out to me. And before we get going, I want to tell you what those three things that stood out to me were. First, there are two predominant themes in these last six chapters. They are two themes that show up in every single one of these minor prophets. And they are judgment and Salvation. If you're taking notes, you could write down those two themes that are in these last six chapters, judgment and salvation. That was the first thing that stood out to me. Second, there are two main characters in these final chapters. They are the false shepherds and they are the good shepherd. And the judgment is for the false shepherds and the salvation comes through the good shepherd. And third, when it comes to the fulfillment of these prophecies given 2,500 years ago, we would have to say today that already Many of them have been fulfilled, while of others, we would have to say, not yet. So, we can celebrate. We can today celebrate because a lot of this has already happened. And we can hope because some of this is still in the future. It is still yet to come. So with those introductory remarks out of the way, let's begin by looking at this theme of judgment. We'll look at judgment and then we'll look at salvation. Judgment was coming, is Zechariah's message here through these oracles. Judgment was coming not only for the false shepherds, but also for enemy nations and false prophets. So under judgment number one, God would judge and destroy enemy nations. Judgment was coming for enemy nations. Chapter 9, read with me these first four verses. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea and she shall be devoured by fire. God would judge and destroy enemy nations. Second, God would judge and destroy false prophets. His judgment was coming for false prophets. Chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. And if anyone again prophesies, and that is prophesies falsely. You'll see these are prophets that are not sent from God. They say they're from God. They say they have a message from God. They don't. If anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. His mom and dad are charged to call him out. And then what? And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. That is, pierce him through with a dagger or spear and kill him. This is how serious God's judgment was on those who claimed to be prophets speaking on behalf of God but who were liars looking to deceive God's people. Verse 4, On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. God would judge and destroy false prophets. And now third, and you'll see this judgment is by far given the most attention in these six chapters. God would judge and destroy false shepherds. They are a main character at the end of this book. Judgment was coming for false shepherds. Chapter 10, we read about it. In chapter 10 verse 2 and 3. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. And here is why God is so upset over this. For The Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. The job of these shepherds was to care for God's people, was to love God's people, was to look out for God's people like a shepherd over sheep, to protect them, to defend them, and they didn't. You'll remember that when Jesus came, his people were in the same condition. When Jesus came in the first century, they also did not have good shepherds who were caring for them. And we see the compassion of God in Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. More judgment coming for these false shepherds in chapter 11. One chapter later in chapter 11 verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. And in these verses to come, we see that that's the image that is given of God's judgment of these false shepherds. It's a forest fire. Something we're sadly all familiar with right now. We know how devastating a forest fire is. And this was going to be God's judgment of these false shepherds. Verse 2, whale O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail of oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. And then down in verse 17. Woe! God says, to my worthless shepherd. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flocked. That's why they were worthless. They deserted the flock, left them open to harm. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. God's people needed shepherds. God's people, we could read about it throughout the Old Testament. They either succeeded or suffered. They either succeeded or suffered depending on who their leaders were. A big part of the reason why Jerusalem was such a... A mess was because of her leaders. And so accountability was coming, God was saying. And judgment was coming. And that's the first overarching theme in these chapters. It is one of judgment. But, not only judgment. I'm sure that was comforting to those who were under these false shepherds. But that's not the only theme that was on the horizon. Also salvation, judgment and salvation, the same thing as in our future. Salvation for these Jews in the 6th century B.C. was also coming. And this salvation was coming through a good shepherd, not these false shepherds. There were many bad leaders, but there was a good leader who was coming. There was the ultimate leader who was coming. The Messiah was coming. The good shepherd was coming. And with him, salvation. And that's an overarching theme in these final chapters. So let's look at the second theme now. Remember that these descriptions of salvation through the good shepherd, they're not given in any kind of order. That's intentional. Can't plot this out. We all want to do that. I'm sure they wanted to do that. This will happen. And then this. And then that. And then that. So I've got this much time to do this. And then I know that this will happen. And then once that happens, right, we like that order. We would like to have that crystal ball. We would like to know what was in the future, exactly how it was going to happen, and when it was going to happen, but that's not what we have here. According to Kenneth Jones, a commentator, he said that what's ahead are like pearls waiting to be arranged and strung together. So let's pick up each of these pearls now. Let's look at each of these pearls. I counted four. And you might see or group together a different number. But let's look at four pearls here in these final six chapters all about this good shepherd. So here's pearl number one, you could call it. This good shepherd will be a mighty king this good shepherd who is coming would be a mighty King. And I'll show you three texts that say that. The first is in chapter 9 where the people are introduced to this coming leader. And here are verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That should sound familiar to you. In Matthew chapter 21 In John chapter 12, as Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that final week of his earthly life, he rode in on the donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he that is this king shall speak peace to the nations, his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this is a mighty king who is coming. A few verses down in chapter 9, verse 16 and 17. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. He's a shepherd. He's a mighty king. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. And then you could skip ahead to the last chapter and see the same thing in chapter 14. I'll just quote verse 9. And the Lord will be king, there it is again, over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one and His name one. So the first pearl, this good shepherd would be a mighty king. Pearl number two, this good shepherd will gather and strengthen His flock. That would be good news, they had been scattered, they had been led into exile, they were weak and insignificant, but pearl number two, they are told that this good shepherd was going to gather them up and he was going to strengthen them. And I'll show you three texts again, the first in chapter 10, 10 verses 8 through 10. I will whistle for them and gather them in." I love that image. If our kids are outside and we need the kids to come outside, I go and stand on the front porch and what do I do? I whistle. And they know when they hear the whistle, Dad's looking for you. So God says of this king, this good shepherd, I will whistle for them. And gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt, and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon, till there is no room for them. Two verses later, verse 12 of chapter 10, I will make them strong. In unity there is strength, and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. And then the third text that talks about this is in chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 6, on that day. I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. That's pearl number two. This good shepherd would gather together and strengthen His people. It was good news of salvation. A third pearl, and this would be the plot twist. When you're reading a book or you're watching a movie and something happens that is totally unexpected, And you think to yourself, I can't understand how this could possibly be something good. You think for a minute that the story is ruined. You know what I'm talking about. You think for a minute that the movie is ruined. And you've got to wait and finish the story to see how everything gets reconciled. Well, the same is true here. There is a plot twist. It's a pearl, but it doesn't look like a pearl. But it's made clear in these final six chapters that this good shepherd will be killed. This mighty king, that sounds good. This mighty king who was going to gather and strengthen his people, that sounds really good, was going to suffer and be killed. That doesn't fit. That doesn't sound right. That doesn't make sense. But they were told this. Let me read you three more texts. The first is in chapter 11. If you're trying to figure out which verses to jump to as we jump around in this sermon, I'd suggest you jump to these. The first one is in chapter 11. And it's in verses 7 through 8 where they learned that this good shepherd was going to be rejected. First, that he would be rejected. Chapter 11, verse 7 and 8. So I became, that is the Lord, I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed the three shepherds, that is, false shepherds. But I became impatient with them, and they also detested me. This good shepherd would be detested. He would be rejected. And it would get worse. Look now at chapter 13. In chapter 13, verses 7 through 9, this good shepherd would be struck, meaning he would suffer. He would be beaten. Chapter 13, 7 through 9, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. So God is even behind this striking of the good shepherd. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered that's quoted along with so many other passages in Zechariah in Mark chapter 14, verse 27, as the disciples of Jesus scattered and ran to hide when their leader, Jesus, was arrested. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. So a smaller number, one-third versus two-thirds, would be taken by God, would be loved by God, and they would suffer, and that would be a refining of them. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. This good shepherd was going to be struck. It gets worse. Look at chapter 12 now, in verse 10. Not only... In this plot twist, was the good shepherd going to be rejected, detested? Not only was he going to suffer and be struck, he was going to be pierced. It means he would be killed. 12, verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This good shepherd, who would be a mighty king who would gather together God's people, who would strengthen them. He would also be rejected. He would be struck. He would be pierced. That doesn't sound like good news. That sounds like a turn for the worse. That is bad news. That sounds like a bad ending. But if you were to skip ahead and read chapter 14, you would see that it is a chapter filled with celebration. So how? Somehow this death of the good shepherd would accomplish something. We know, you and me, we know the how. They didn't. But somehow, this was a part of God's good plan. That this mighty king was going to be killed. And what would that accomplish? That brings us to the final pearl. It's just one verse. And it's the most hopeful verse, the most encouraging verse in these chapters. It's at the very beginning of chapter 13, verse 1. Take a second to go there. This is pearl 4. The good shepherd will cleanse his people from sin. Mighty king, great. Gather his people, great. Strengthen his people, great. But that doesn't get to the real problem yet. What was the real problem? The real problem wasn't that these Jews were being scattered. The real problem wasn't that their nation had fallen apart, that their capital city was in ruins. The real problem wasn't that they were under these earthly threats from the surrounding nations. The real problem was Deeper. The real problem was within. The real problem was that they had been created by God for God's glory, and they had failed miserably. Like you have failed. And like I fail. And they needed to somehow be cleansed, they needed to be cleaned up, they needed to be forgiven. And they needed to be helped to do what God had created them to do. So pearl number four. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin. And uncleanness. That's better than being saved from their enemies. This is being saved from Satan. This is being saved from sin. This is being saved from death. Can you handle this? This is being saved from God. This is God. Saving his people from himself. His people deserving his judgment. His people deserving his anger. His people deserving his wrath. His people deserving to be alienated from him forever. And God making a way for them to be. Cleansed, to be washed clean. This is symbolized, it's pictured, portrayed in the mode of baptism that our Lord Jesus prescribes to us. You saw the image today. Baptism by immersion as we're called to practice in God's word, is this display in front of you. It is this portrayal. It is something you can see with your eyes. Do you see this person being immersed in water? What did Mitchell request? Hold me in there longer. I want it more dramatic. And then we're brought up out of the water. What is that picture? Zechariah 13 verse 1. To cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And of course we go to the New Testament. And we can read in places like Hebrews 9. That this is exactly what has happened through our good shepherd Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9 verses 12 through 14. He, that is Jesus the Christ... He entered once for all into the holy places. You remember that is into the temple and into the most holy place. That room that it was forbidden for anyone to go where only the high priest could go after making sacrifices on his own behalf. And he could go in there once a year to make a sacrifice to pacify the judgment and wrath of God for the people. Jesus went into that most holy place not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Purify, it says. Cleanse. Zechariah 13.1 There it is. There is this coming judgment. And salvation in these final six chapters. And this should have encouraged those discouraged Jews. Judgment of the false shepherds was coming, and salvation through the good shepherd was coming. Well, in conclusion, as I said at the beginning, a lot of this prophecy has already come true. The Good Shepherd has come. He was rejected. He was struck and he was pierced, but he rose from the dead. It's interesting, you can read one of those, those prophecies and we read it and there's a hint, it seems, of resurrection. Because you will look on him, present tense, the one whom you had killed. How do you look on one that you had killed? If he didn't raise from the dead, he conquered sin and death. And made a way for us to be cleansed from sin and reconciled to God. That has happened. It was future for them. It is past for us. His kingdom is established. This mighty king's kingdom is established. And he reigns right now. He reigns as a mighty king in And through his people, moving every second of every day closer to the consummation of his kingdom. And so in light of that encouragement, it is encouraging to us, what should we do? How should we apply this? We always must do this after reading God's word. What does it mean? And now, what does it mean for me? What change needs to happen? What should I do differently? What should I think differently? What should I say differently? How should this apply? And I'm going to give you two suggestions. Number one is an instruction given explicitly in these final chapters. In light of these pearls, we should, number one, rejoice. At the very beginning, in chapter 9, you you'll remember verse 9, it said, Rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. And so we just tweak that a bit because the king has come. And we understand that we should rejoice greatly because behold, our king has come to us. And so we shouldn't be able to read this and read of the fulfillment of this in the New Testament and not rejoice. No matter what, we have this reason for joy. No matter what is going on, we have this reason for hope and contentment. And so as Christians... One of the worst things we could be is a dour people, is a complaining people, is a grumbly people. We should be a people who are rejoicing. Paul said we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. There's always a lot to be sad about. And there's always much more to be joyful about because of what we've read today. So I would encourage you to rejoice. And then second, this is, I think, implicit in the text. We should get to work. We should get to work. Remember that this was meant to encourage God's people. Go back and read all of Zechariah, or think back if you've been here to the last two sermons before this one. This was written, spoken, I'm sure, first, and written to encourage God's people to do something. It was encouraging them. To do this work that God had put before them to do. And in their case, it was to rebuild the temple. Like us, I'm sure that they wanted a precise timeline of events. God, can you tell us exactly how these good things are going to happen and how they're going to roll out? So... Like I know how much time I have to still do my own thing before repenting. So I can prepare for that so that I can gear up for it. They didn't get it. They needed to hear and they only needed to hear God's promises and rely on Him. We have the same thing. We're in the same sort of situation in that we also have God's revealed and his secret will. We do know what God is going to do. We know how the story is going to move forward. And we know how the story is ultimately going to end. No doubt about it. But often the how and the when is kept hidden from us. And think about how many plot twists there have been in your life. And you may be in the middle of one right now. It's a plot twist. And you can't figure out how this could possibly work for your good. And you can't figure out how this could possibly end well. But here we have it, here in Zechariah, the very means to our salvation was a plot twist. So we know the what, we often don't know the how, we usually don't know the how, we don't know the when, and yet encouraged we should be like they should have been. We live by faith. We live by faith and not by sight. And we obediently face and complete what God has given us to do. We should get to work and do the work that God has given us to do. Which is not rebuild the temple. We have not been called to rebuild the temple. God has not been that specific to us. But hasn't God called us to work? Hasn't God called us to not only enjoy Him, but to glorify Him forever? Hasn't God called us to labor in this world? Matthew chapter 28, I read it during those baptisms, but here's our marching orders. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, go, go, work. Labor. Do something. Glorify God. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We've learned about that. God says, Jesus says, I will be with you. I will be for you. You're going to get the job done. I'm your mighty king working for your good. So be encouraged and rejoice and be encouraged and get to work. The questions we ask are, what would we do? God, show us. Show us how to obey you. Show us how to serve you in the times that we have. Show us what this means. Show us what this looks like. We're prayerful. We find others who are doing this well, and we ask them questions, we look for guidance and help because we want to get to work in our home. And so we look for examples. Not only in our home, in our church, we want to get to work. Not only in our church, but in our city. Not only in our city, in our state. Not only in our state, in our nation. Not only in our nation, in the world. We rejoice, and then we prayerfully make the most of the opportunities that God has given us. And whatever we do, we do it with all our might. For the glory of God in our own heart, in our homes, in our church, in our city, in our nation and beyond. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. There is so much more that we could say. And God, we ask that You would move in our hearts and in our minds that we would would feel burdened and convicted to rejoice and to get to work, to do the work that You have given us to do, God, not just to survive, not just to barely make it, but by your spirit and in accordance with your word to serve you for all our days. God, give us wisdom that we would know how to bring you glory in our home and in our nation and beyond. What would you have us say, God? God. How would you have us speak up? Where would you have us take a stand? What would you have us do with our children? What would you have us do in our churches? What would you have us do as citizens of this great nation? What would you have us do as believers in this world surrounded by so many unbelievers? God, burden us and teach us, we pray.